Bitcoin has been forged in an environment of hostility from the very beginning. It is an explicitly countercultural transformative technology, which if successful will change like much of how the earth works and is going to have a gazillion enemies, 100%. Zcash and Ethereum are not enemies of Bitcoin. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all? I'm pretty good over here. Well, I've put my back out. I've been laid up on the couch for a few days. So firstly, a massive thanks to everybody who sent me a DM on Twitter or sent me an email or even just posted me a message with ideas on how to get better. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Wow, what a week. Bitcoin hit an all-time new high. Well, it did on some exchanges. Some people are saying it didn't, but I'm taking it and I think we're going to burst through 20k pretty soon. So a massive week. Amazing stuff. Congratulations to everyone who rode out this bear market. There were some rough times. But it's been pretty good this last year. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with two of my good friends, Dan Held and Eric Voorhees, where they're going to debate Bitcoin and altcoins. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. And first up, we're going to talk about BlockFi. And they have a huge announcement. BlockFi is about to launch its Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card. It's going to be coming in early 2021. This is something I've been really excited for. So check this out. Card users can earn a market lead in 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin on all card purchases. It does have a $200 annual fee, but you will earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin if you spend $3,000 in the first three months. So with this card, you can stack sats on all your purchases. Very, very cool. Waiting registration is now open to all registered BlockFi clients. So if you want to join the priority waiting list, you do need to open up a BlockFi account and the public waiting list is slated to open in early January. I'm very, very excited to get my card. If you're interested in finding out more about BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, let's talk about the mighty, mighty Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin, the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you want to know why, right? Well, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, they are going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app, so you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, let's take a look at Otis, an investment platform that makes it possible for almost anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets, from contemporary art to rare collectibles, sports cars, memorabilia, sneakers, comics, and so much more. And here's how it works. You download the app and you can sign up for free. New cultural assets are dropped in the app weekly for you to buy shares in. You can also buy shares of past drops from other Otis members, and you can earn potential return if Otis sells the underlying asset for more than the price the item was dropped at or by sending the shares to other Otis members on Otis Trading Platform. I've signed up and I was checking it out. They've got cool sneaker investments like the 1985 Air Jordan 1 collection. Also, as a lover of modern art, it was pretty cool to see some Banksy work up there too. 
Right now, Otis is offering a free investment share to listeners of my show. All you have to do is head over to withotis.com forward slash WBD and sign up to get your first share for free when you fund your account. That is withotis.com forward slash WBD. Okay, so onto the show today, and I have Dan Held and Eric Forhees on the show, two of my good friends in the world of Bitcoin, and they have come out to battle the big contentious issue of Bitcoin versus altcoins. So with the market looking super healthy and with Bitcoin looking like it's broken its all-time high, well it did on some exchanges, we're going to see an influx of new investors coming into the market because of Bitcoin over the coming months and years. And lots of these new people will have their heads turned by alts for many, many reasons because they seem to be cheap or, or they've been sold on the marketing or some apparent innovation. Look, it's an easy trap to fall into. I did in 2017, made and lost a bunch of money very quickly, and now I am Bitcoin only. Not, I wouldn't say I'm a maximalist, but you know what, some people would. But I am now Bitcoin only. I avoid altcoins. But with that said, I wanted to do a show that outlines the risks of investing in alts and why it's probably best to concentrate on Bitcoin. But I wanted it to be fair. So I asked Dan and Eric to come on the show to have the debate. They come from a different point of view. Like, I'm like Dan. I'm on Dan's side. Bitcoin only, but Eric is a firm believer in the market for altcoins, and he did make some interesting points. So I hope you enjoy this. If you want to get in touch, if you have any feedback, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone, so feel free to get in touch for any reason. And also, if you want to check out my other show, it's called Defiance. We've got part four of my series about US political division coming out. That's coming out on Thursday, so I hope you check that out. That's available at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great week, and I'll see you all soon. Right, Dan, Eric, good to have you both back on the podcast. Uh, you've been a bit a while since you've been on, Eric. Uh, Dan's been on more recently, so I'll say hello to you first. How are you, Eric? I'm very good. Thanks for having me back on. It's been too long. Yeah, well, you're always welcome. You know that. Dan, my Thank good you. friend, haven't seen you in ages. You well? Good. I, uh, it's, it's been too long, this COVID and not being able to go to Bitcoin conferences. It's, it, it's driving me a little crazy. Yeah, I know. You know how much I travel normally and try and get over to America every month or two, and I think it's February the last time I was over, so a long time for me. Um, before we start, did any of you, did you, either of you just watch that crazy-ass press conference? No. With Sydney, the- what's her name? Wow. And Rudy Giuliani? No, what was it? No. The claims of massive fraud against the American people using machines from Venezuela, which were enabled a fraud to be committed there um, by f- people who are friends with Chavez. That this election has been stolen from the American people and they are patriots and they are going to bring justice to America. I can't I can't repeat exactly what they said because I don't remember, but it was <laughs> kind of crazy, man. Like, ha- ha- I'll start with you, Eric. Ha- ha- like, how are you feeling about it all at the moment? Because it's kind of crazy times. It's obviously a very contested election with two sides who equally believe they've won and it looks a lot more messy than the Al Gore Bush situation I'm just really glad that I don't really give a shit who won (laughs) (laughs) when when you see them as like diametric opposites and one is good and and valorous and the other is like the epitome of evil I can imagine this being really stressful and both sides think the other is evil and it's like end of the world but when you actually step back from politics and realize that like they're actually this far off from each other and they they differ more in appearance and mannerism than they do in actual uh, policy, um, it, it's kind of relieving. And so I just I don't care too much. And 
when people say the election was stolen, I, I don't really care because most people don't vote anyway. And I, I think the whole thing's a sham. So yeah, yeah. On, in some sense, you just kind of watch it from afar. And uh, it, it's kind of the same way with like the banking system where I used to care a lot more about it. And now I feel distant and safe from that nonsense. Yeah, I think to extrapolate on that, I when people go, oh, who do you care, like who are you voting for, which side do you hope wins? And I go, as a libertarian, I'm equally disappointed with whoever wins. <laughs> that's a, that's just, a very kind way to put it. <laughs> well, I, I know both of your feelings, Dan, from having spent time with you, Eric, from a couple of interviews, but Eric also from hearing your cameo performance in Bitcoin Billionaires when I was uh, out jogging during my during the last lockdown. Um, I got to. I'm guessing you've read it or heard it. I've read parts of it. I have not actually read the whole thing. All the bits. Did you did you download it and do a Eric an Eric search and read all your? No, bits? I'm I'm a little worried. If I read the whole thing, I will get mad about things that weren't accurate. And on oh. some level, it doesn't matter, you know. So I don't want to worry too much about it. Well, I feel like from the the time I I've known you and spent with you that you it represented you as I as I know you. So I think it was pretty fair. Um, yeah, I'm guessing it's the things that were omitted from that book, which are okay. more interesting. You can tell me at the next round table. We'll uh, we'll cover it there. Yeah, I I do I do want to say that um, I th I think the the Winklevi, the Winklevoss brothers, I think they deserve a fair amount of credit uh, because when they got involved in Bitcoin, it was certainly long before anyone reputable was doing that, and um, they they not only stuck with it after you know that first bubble back then and after BitInstant fell apart, but they stuck with it through multiple bubbles and continued to to cheerlead it and support it through all the ups and downs. And they they had they had a lot of reputational damage risk that they could have taken and they stuck through it. So they they deserve a lot of credit for that. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean they they were I remember the San Jose twenty thirteen conference. Do you guys remember, Eric, you might remember that one. Yeah. Um, there, you know, we had just come off the March 2013 bubble when it went from $10 to 260 back down to 100. And uh, the Winklevi, I think, were the, the keynote speakers. But, you know, it was just a little bit surreal because it was like this hobbyist sort of movement that had now become something more tangible. Like there was hundreds of people in a, in a big conference area and there was famous people that I, I knew their name. You know, and the, <laughs> the Winklevi, I think, were the first really well-known people to get into Bitcoin that were public. Yeah. Yeah. That conference was definitely the one where I felt like, oh, this is turning from little niche plaything into something real. And that was still so many years ago. Well, I think this is really interesting. I just did an interview with Brandon Quittam, um, talking about the fourth turning, talking about how Bitcoin is relevant. And I was trying to explain that this, what, what's been happening over the last few months feels for me, very, very different from 2017. I didn't really properly experience 2013. I didn't know what was going on. I was just aware of Bitcoin as something you could buy as a CFD, which I did and made and lost money and spent a little bit of Bitcoin on the Silk Road. But I, like, I wasn't in the Bitcoin world. But what feels really different between now and 2017 is that it still felt a little bit kind of like something that could be banned, still a bit something that could fail, a little bit rock and roll, but... This last few months, it's felt like something that is now is just a genuine, credible investment, credible part of the market. And anybody who just dismisses it with the same old tired arguments, it's 
they're almost getting laughed out of the building. And it was quite interesting seeing Ray Dalio kind of switch this week. We had Dan, you having that chat with that that uh, Mexican billionaire who's got 10% liquid assets. We've had what Michael Saylor's done, what Square's done. It's It's a very serious piece of business now. How do you feel about that? I mean, we, we, we've waited eight. I've, I've been in this space. So I first bought my coins in 2012 and built my first product in 13. I've waited eight, eight years to see this moment. My original investment thesis was that Bitcoin is gold 2.0. And it has largely fulfilled that expectation. And now that is the most resounding, loudest narrative in the space. And on this bull run, we not only have great structural, you know, integrity of, of like our tra uh, trading infrastructure in terms of different financial instruments and liquidity. You also have the validation and buy-in and, and reduction of career risk by legends like Paul Tudor Jones, and then companies as well from like Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy and Square with uh, Jack Dorsey. This has de-risked the space hugely. Um, in addition, you've got like the, one of the biggest macro events in a hundred years. I would say like world wars and <laughs> and pandemics are on, on the scale of like a very, very, you know, these are once in a hundred years sort of events. Um, Bitcoin is built for this moment. So the store of value narrative combined with that narrative being propagated by businesses and institutional traders and Bitcoin largely executing upon that path, I couldn't I, I couldn't imagine it being this good of a setup. Um, again, back when, back when in like 2012 and 2013, I mean, my, my first wallet was Bitcoin QT. Like it was the, uh, it was a full node. It was the, the course off the Bitcoin course software essentially. And you, know, you had to run a full node. So I was like, why does it, have, why does this have to sync every time I, I opened it up? Cause I didn't understand how it all worked just yet. And uh, to see that come from there all the way through here, where you can buy it with PayPal, Robinhood, Square, uh, is incredible. Yeah, the the PayPal achievement is is really awesome. You know, their their horrible descriptions of the four coins aside, them putting it not just like as something supported in that platform, but pretty front and center when you log into PayPal now, it's, it's magical and awesome. But I we we like to use this this phrase of uh you know first they ignore you and then they laugh at you and then they fight you and then you win and um, I think people many people think that the fighting was years ago that we already passed that part. And I don't think we arrived at that part yet. I think we're done with the laughing at part. And that's why you're seeing all these, you know, very reputable, credible people feeling comfortable stepping into it because it's it's respectable if, if still kind of niche. But the real challenge comes when, when fiat currencies start suffering in a context of Bitcoin strength. That's when the fighting actually happens. And we haven't gotten to that point yet. So, so we need to really interesting stay point. humble there. Because um, this came up in my conversation um, with Brendan as well, but also with Nick Batia yesterday. We had, we had a long conversation. And I said, one of the interesting things is going to be is that this kind of move to CBDCs is kind of interesting for a number of reasons. But CBDCs are going to condition a number of people into using a digital currency in a wallet in a similar way to that you would use Bitcoin. But ultimately, what they're going to see is that every currency will then be priced against Bitcoin. And you will very, very quickly see which are being debased. So it kind of enforces a uh, like a monetary responsibility from central banks. Else people will just exit back into exit into Bitcoin. And that's when the real fight can start. There's a couple of things to unpack here. One is that 
I agree, central bank digital currencies normalize the idea of like digital currencies in people's minds. Now, central bank digital currencies, to be clear, are an abomination of like freedom. <laughs> it is total, complete control of the central bank over the economy, business, and personal transactions, which is horrible. Uh, this is a this is not an innovation. This is 1984 actually happening. Um, however, that plus, you know, when Libra came out, I was optimistic because I felt that Libra, Facebook's Libra coin, could essentially normalize or, you know, with the name of Facebook behind it, normalize the idea of, of money that's not from your government or, or that like money has transformed to this digital version, which then makes the leap to Bitcoin, I think, easier because as they see their purchasing power decrease by holding on to that fiat, then they look at Bitcoin and they see the increase in purchasing power as irresistible. I think I've come up with an I've had an analogy I've used before with Brandon Quidham around Bitcoin in the final fight. So to Eric's point, I don't think the main battle has occurred yet. Bitcoin has fought several small skirmishes, including a you know a civil war between the Bitcoin Cash community and the Bitcoin community. And so the biggest fight though is against states. And there's a terminology in um, science fiction called the great filter event. Uh, so when we look across our solar system and we look out to the galaxy into the universe, it's very quiet. We don't see any, we don't hear any radio signals. We don't see Star Wars-esque level civilization, civilizations moving energy around. And so it's very quiet out there. And according to the Drake equation, which is a, an equation where you plug in a bunch of different variables to calculate how many other intelligent uh, intelligent species there should be, we should see quite a more few, we should see a bunch more activity going on. So the hypothesis is that there's a great filter event in which every civilization doesn't get past. Could be nuclear weapons, could be antimatter. Um, those are their eventual demise. For Bitcoin, the great filter event and with every other cryptocurrency is the fight against states. Only the ones that are truly decentralized and state censorship resistant will survive that great, the great filter event. So that's where I totally agree with Eric, the biggest battle is to come. And I think Bitcoin and very few others might survive that, that last final battle. Go on, Eric, I'm sure you want to jump in there. No, I, I think the, the, the reason it's important is because um, people need to people need to prepare their lives for when that's happening. And that comes down to everything from like one's own estate planning and, you know, <laughs> making sure what coins you lose on your yacht are the ones you want to be losing on your yacht. And it comes down to people mentally preparing for a time when their passion, what they care about and what they fought for for years becomes vilified in the public to a very intense degree. Um, you know, this is why a lot of Bitcoiners remain anonymous and, and thankfully so, you know, there's a, a certain degree of protection to that that is very important. And uh, and that anonymity will be one of the major one of the major weapons that we have when this starts happening. Well, listen, this is going to lead us on to where we may spend a lot of time discussing. I'm sure we've got a lot to get through here, but you two have had some disagreements in the past uh, as also you and i eric have discussed this the the world of bitcoin only or a world of multiple coins um but it's certainly something you know we between us we've discussed and discussed separately now i don't normally cover allow the coverage of altcoins or you know tokens on on the show because i just want it to be a bitcoin show but 
at the same time, if we have a ball run coming, there are going to be people listening to the show who may be, you know, as much as I'm a Bitcoiner, may be considering you know, altcoins and tokens as investments. So I don't mind discussing it in relevance of two people making their side of the argument. Yourself, Eric, who is, I know is pro alternative coins and Dan, I, I know you're against it. So I'm always happy to do that because I think it's useful for people to be able to listen. One thing I would ask as a starting point though, Eric, because there is, if if we are asking people where, like to consider where to put their investments, how does an altcoin differ? Let's talk about like a, a monetary altcoin rather than tokens, like utility tokens. Let's talk about monetary altcoin. How do they really differ in t- from say other kind of currencies when you have to consider your investment do i hold in pounds do i hold in bitcoin do i hold in litecoin do i hold in you know how do you see that do you see that it's different at all because i see it's that kind of same risk in that as dan mentioned firstly if they're not fully decentralized they're available to attack but also if they aren't able to really pick it up any liquidity a lot of them if you look at a lot of these uh coins their chart their bitcoin chart is usually pretty pretty poor over uh, a long period of time do you see tokens and and monetary coins as different, or do you all just see it as one set of potential investments? Yeah, uh, probably. If there's one thing to take away from all my thoughts on other coins, it's that these things have different attributes. They are different. Each one is different. They have lots of different attributes, and on each attribute, you can discuss whether it's better or worse than some other coin on that attribute, and I think one of the problems that we often get into is to to treat things too simply or to to homogenize them into one category and then to dismiss the category. Um, and if you homogenize altcoins into one category, it is very easy to dismiss them because the majority and probably the vast majority of them are total garbage, right? And I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that. Um, and when the majority of something is garbage, there is, a I think, a tendency or a mental bias to dismiss the whole lot. But I don't I don't take that position. Uh, now, if you're asking like whether someone who is interested in the the monetary argument that Bitcoin is better money and thus is a great investment, especially relative to fiat, there's no coin that I'm going to hold up and say it is better than Bitcoin for that purpose. I think hands down, the best form of money in the world today is Bitcoin, period. No, no exceptions. Um, and I'm happy to, to defend that point. So, you know, if someone is purely interested for that reason, and indeed that's why many of us got involved in this from that monetary angle, and you just want to care about Bitcoin and only hold Bitcoin for that reason, I think that there's nothing wrong with that and it's perfectly fine. And at the same time, there are some other coins that for various other reasons are really interesting and really profoundly influential. Okay. All right. Okay. As a starting point then, uh, in response to that, Dan, do you want to put put forward your case for why because you you have basically I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna speak for you but tell me if i'm wrong you have a a, a kind of broad uh, assertion that everything that isn't bitcoin within the space is just uh set for failure poor investments poor use of the technology but you see where i'm going but i'll let you put uh, forward your case yeah let me dig in a little bit so i'm a product guy um, and, and by the way, Eric's built some great products in the space. Uh, really, I've always respected Eric's ability to find and, and be innovative and, and craft products. Um, so as a fellow product person, this is maybe my appeal to, to Eric. Um, when we build products, we solve a problem for our customers. 
And so when Satoshi went out to build Bitcoin, he built blockchain technology to build Bitcoin. And he set out to solve the problem of storing value. Essentially, Satoshi, and now we can, we can, there's a long discussion over intent and everything else, but for simplicity's sake, he's there to solve the problem of trust. You know, we must trust our central banks. We must trust our banks. And Bitcoin removes that measure of trust um, through its immutable monetary policy and the immutability of transactions. And the way that Satoshi architected the, big, uh, the blockchain architecture was to enable those two value props. Blockchains are very, very bulky and very poor at doing almost everything. With any sort of specialized equipment, whether it be a shovel, a tank, or other piece or tool that you use, it's been built to serve a function. Now, when people go, oh, well, how about like distributed databases or whatnot? Distributed databases have been around for a long time. Satoshi took existing ideas and put them all together to create Bitcoin. And the innovation behind that, I think, is primarily around being a sound money. Now, other folks said, hey, we've got this cool technology that's distributed, really hard to destroy. What if we could use it for other things? You know, I've been around for eight years and I've seen 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go, and I just haven't seen a lot of that materialized. So part of this is my product sense of going, hey, this is specialized technology built to solve one problem. And then we found empirically that it's very bad at solving these other problems. So it makes me very skeptical when I hear people talk about how this technology might solve a problem that isn't money. Um, and then furthermore, when we look at the security model of these chains, what happens is that there's a block reward produced. That block reward is produced to reward, reward the miners for organizing transactions properly. It pays them or incentivizes them to behave. When we look at these chains, most issuance schedules require transaction fees to replace the block subsidy, which is the newly minted coins over time. As Bitcoin's issuance schedule levels out at 21 million, after all the Bitcoins have been mined, Bitcoin will only be protected by the transaction fees paid by transactors. When we look at on-chain data for almost every coin other than Bitcoin and Ethereum, they have nearly no transactional fee volume which means that their long-term security is objectively poor. Um, so in the short term, they might be fine, but in the long term, they are, have structural problems that are very apparent. So those are the two reasons why I'm not very bullish on a coin outside of Bitcoin, is the specialization of blockchain tech and the long-term security implications that we can see today. Anyone can go look at these metrics on, for example, coin metrics, look at total fees generated or total transaction fees generated. So those are my two, those would be my two um, pushbacks on that narrative. All right. What do you think of that, Eric? Okay, so let's talk about one one use case because what it, what astounds me about the the maximalist position is that it, it essentially it tries to make a point that is impossible to defend, which is that zero other value exists outside Bitcoin. So I feel like to to tackle that, um, one simply needs to demonstrate any value that is outside Bitcoin for the maximalist position to be defeated. And so I want to talk about like one one use case that all of you guys are familiar with, and most people on the that are listening to this would be familiar. Is it Denticoin? Um, it is not Denticoin. It's not Denticoin, and we can talk about Denticoin if you want. I'll just but with you. we all know about um, we all know about BlockFi. Right, mm -hmm. BlockFi, excellent company. I'm a customer. I use them 
great service. I have nothing bad to say about BlockFi. However, what they're offering is an ability primarily to, to get a loan of one asset based on crypto collateral, right? Primarily Bitcoin collateral, but they support several other assets. So you can put up your crypto collateral and you can get fiat or you can get other coins from them. It's a great service, right? Uh, everyone should try it out if they haven't. It is centralized. So you're going through all of the KYC and compliance issues, all of that surveillance that all of us despise. Uh, all of the risks of a central entity holding those funds are there. And we all know the reasons why that's a problem. And yet there's also this whole thing called Ethereum and people building these smart contracts on Ethereum. And in that world, you can do uh, a very similar thing of getting crypto backed loans, putting in one asset and getting out another, but without any central party being involved, no KYC, no, uh, no atrocious surveillance done on that. No, no borders, no uh, territory restrictions, no censorship, no need to worry that when you try to withdraw, it'll be blocked for some compliance reason. That's built on Ethereum because of the smart contract capabilities of that chain. And you don't have to say that that is a better product than BlockFi or not, but to say that there is zero value in, that, in the ability of people to access that service without compliance and without restriction and without censorship, um, I think is a, an unjustifiable position. Okay. It's an interesting point. It's something I've thought about myself. Um, and uh, I I don't hate Ethereum like I like like I, like I dislike other st like stupid pro like I think Filecoin is stupid and I think it's already collapsed under the weight of its stupidity. Now I think there's a lot of other kind of stupid projects. I don't think I think of Ethereum differently. There is clearly a lot of people who like it who are using it and getting value from it in their own way. I don't and I choose not to, but I consider Ethereum as a game and the objective in the game is to leave with as much money as you possibly can before it collapses. That's my view on it. I don't I, I wouldn't I don't get in the whole kind of fight it's a scam or whatever. I've kind of a slightly different view. What, what do you think about that Dan? What do you think about what Eric said there? Yeah, so as a product person, I go, I look at the product I'm developing, whether that be a centralized product or a decentralized one, and I look at what problem is it solving. Um, most people don't need over-collateralized loans. They, they typically need loans because they don't have the money. So this solves a very niche problem, which is around getting levered. A predominant use case of borrowing for BlockFi, using your Bitcoin or, or, or Ethereum as collateral, and same on these DeFi protocols is to get levered. Or you could take that that money and go do something else with it. Now, there's a couple issues with this longer term where like one is, is a more niche use case, which yes, you are non-KYC AML'd, but you're also doing this on a transparent ledger that everyone in the whole world can see. It's not exactly like better for privacy, it's actually worse for that. It is permissionless, agreed. That's very interesting. However, there are large structural problems with how this works in practice. March 12th was a great example where MakerDAO actually fundamentally broke at a game theoretic level. Um, I forget exactly how it happened, but the auction essentially auctioned off at like a $0 value. Whenever the Ethereum blockchain and every other blockchain has a finite amount of block space, which means transactors to get in that block need to bid to get a spot in that block to be timestamped and then kept in the permanent record. When March 12th happened, there was a lot of movement with these uh, products, like these DeFi products, and they all crowded to get on chain at the same time, which led to some game theoretic fundamental things that fell apart. 
And so that's where I think like these are fun in practice where you can do this at a very small scale, but as soon as it hits any very, very minor scaling, there's all sorts of game theory issues that, that occur where like front running concerns can exist. Um, if you need to close or like issue your version of a smart contract in order for the game theory to hold up and you can't get into the block because the now you have to bid $300 to get into the block, things get really complicated and things fall apart. So it works on a hobbyist level, but when you take it and extrapolate it to like anything meaningful, it starts to really have some fundamental issues. Okay, how's this for meaningful? Uniswap is currently doing more trading volume than Coinbase, a two-year-old startup that raised $10 million in a decentralized permissionless way is doing more trading volume than an eight-year-old company that's raised half a billion dollars. You're telling me that that's not meaningful? Well, I, I, well, I'll just interject there and say it's impressive. I think the numbers are impressive, but I don't think that is, I don't think that actually answers the main point Dan was making was with regards to structural issues. Yeah. So if the if the argument is there are structural issues, of course, every blockchain has structural issues. If the argument is those issues are unsolvable and thus the whole thing is going to fall apart, I think empirically so far it has not. And so you need to be a little humble in that position until it does. But what happened on March 12th? I mean, what what's the maker price right now? Higher than then. I mean, you're, what you're taking, what you're... Dan, what you're taking is a, a one day event that was, you know, X sigma out of the norm where problems happened. How many of those have happened in Bitcoin, right? How many, how many times in Bitcoin's, especially early history, were there pretty severe problems that got fixed? That's like, I don't know, equivalent. creating all the money in the world on the Bitcoin blockchain. Like bugs are allowed to occur in open source software. And it doesn't mean that the entire project should be thrown out because problems happen. That's part of the iteration. There's a couple, it wasn't a bug. That was a, it was a game theoretic problem, which means that they hadn't figured out their game theory properly. So that's actually worse than a bug because a bug could be fixed with code. Um, in addition, we're introducing a larger surface area for the argument when we, when we want to get into other parts of this conversation. Like there was a couple different points you had there. So we can dive into each one or we could choose to, which part do you want to stick on? Let's, let's stick back to this, this block five versus, you know, maker discussion, right? Because. I don't dispute that Bitcoin in a centralized service earning interest in that way has value and is useful. And I'm glad that that exists. But I think you do dispute that Ethereum running these smart contracts in a permissionless way, that you, I think you believe there's something fundamentally wrong with that or, or even that there's no value to it at all. And that, that just seems so strange to, to think. I didn't, I didn't say that. What I said is that I think it one, we've seen it break, which all Bitcoiners have essentially, it's the same argument over and over, which is that these things can work for a short period of time at a very small scale, but as soon as anything starts to occur on them, things start to break and it all fundamentally falls apart, which it did on that date, which that's the whole point. This is supposed to be the world's you, financial system and how to operate. Let's talk about that point. You, you're implying that it broke on March in March and that it, that it remained broken. When what actually happened is crash in price, rebound to normal price and a price today that's far higher than it was back then and billions of dollars of this stuff circulating still. So it, it's not like it fell apart and went away. It it, it demonstrated anti-fragility in that, in that moment. Kind of, or it represented speculative trading. Uh, as you've seen in crypto, many assets have 
existed far longer than we thought they might. Um, okay, not based on the raw utility, but based on speculation. The value, the, the whole point of Maker and Die is that the value of a die remains, you know, at or just at a dollar. Is it true or is it false that Die today is at or just at a dollar? Today it is, but it may not be tomorrow, and it wasn't at certain points. Okay, well, for ninety nine point nine percent of Maker Die's history, it has remained at that price. And you take one day during a crazy market event where the peg broke for a bit. And you, you're you're suggesting that that is proof that the system is unsalvageable, or Dan, have we not had the same with tether? Hit. Have we not had times where tether's lost lost its peg? Centralized coins are or centralized stable coins are far different than decentralized ones because centralized ones are based on pure faith versus uh, code and or game theory. Next up, I talked to Dan and Eric more about Bitcoin versus altcoins, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's talk about sportsbet.io. Have you checked them out yet? They are the best place for online gaming, and being such badasses, they accept Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin mooning, you know what? A big shout out to them for everything they've done for Bitcoin. They really do everything they can to promote it. They sponsor football clubs. They even put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League football shirt. Yes, if you watch Southampton this season, you look up close, you will see a Bitcoin logo. That's pretty cool, right? Anyway, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in, from US sports to the Premier League. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to find out more. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And last today, but never least, and especially right now, never least, is Casa who absolutely crushed Bitcoin security. A few months ago, I think it was like six months ago, I signed up to become a Casa customer. I knew my security practices were all over the shop. I was really worried with a bull market, I would screw something up. And I signed up and I am a customer and I've got my shit together with Casa. I'm protected from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And with Casa, they have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that's only $10 a month. A no-brainer, really. With Casa Platinum, you get their 305 multi-sig, and that's the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. Also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a personalized security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is definitely no better time than right now to get your Bitcoin security sorted. If you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Right, okay, so I'm trying I'm trying to see where we can steer this. Okay, so there's potentially a game theoretical issue that will concern you long term, Dan, in that at some point this could break down catastrophically and a lot of people could lose money. One of the things that scares me off the DeFi thing I've never really bought into is that because I've, I've never really dived into it, Eric, but all I've seen is like people saying, oh, I'm I'm yield mining um, tacos or yeah. I'm yield mining potatoes. And then yams. a bunch of people, yeah, yams. And then a bunch of people they, they show this market that's going crazy and then just suddenly slams down. A bunch of people get wrecked. And then I've seen stories of people disappear. It, it doesn't, it feels really amateur compared to, compared to Bitcoin. So my experience with Bitcoin, when I talk to developers, someone like Dan, everything's conservative, slow. I did a, a a long interview recently with John Newbery when he was talking to me about the importance of onboarding the right developers and the review process. It's like, we can't screw this up. It feels to me a bit like when I look at the world of DeFi and Ethereum, it's just this crazy 
casino-like place where people can just get wrecked. So, like, I don't, I don't care. Like, excuse me for this, Dan. I don't care if people want to use Ethereum. And actually, if it breaks in the long term, I, I'm I'm less bothered about that because not every technology lasts forever. You know, I don't have a you know, I have a mobile phone. Now, I don't have a house phone. That kind of thing, right? But what I do would would want to get people to avoid it for is just. It just seems there's so many exit scams or so so many ways you can just lose your money uh, in really crazy ways and and I don't like that. But I guess you do, don't care. Do you know what it do you know what it's very similar to? Early it's very similar to the early days of Bitcoin. <laughs> I knew exactly. you were gonna say that. I knew you were gonna it say is that. A- amateur, experimental, highly risky, scams everywhere, extremely volatile, tons of people losing tons of money. It it is the same phenomenon. It is people is people iterating and inventing new ways of using value on these dis- distributed systems. Most of them will fail. A lot of them will be scams. A lot of people will get wrecked and there's risks everywhere, 100%. But thank God that this experimentation is happening because this is how you build a new financial system instead of just having the banks. And Bitcoin is the best form of money we've ever created as, as a species, absolutely. But a financial system is not just money. That is the start. You use that to start building other parts of it, and you do not replace the entire global financial system with something built on free markets and open systems if all you build is money and nothing that uses that money for any other purpose. Mm. Dan? Yeah, so for me, you look at, let's look at the like the tech stack of like a Ethereum smart contract. You essentially have trust of like how code is running on the Ethereum layer. And then there are different like scaling solutions on top of that, all sorts of different ways that we can compress economic activity down to a single transaction on layer one. Ethereum itself is undergoing a massive, massive change. It's transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. Mm-hmm. It is also, there's a lot of monetary experimentation going on, which is largely done by developers in a closed room with maybe a post, uh, post announcement of what has been decided. But I mean, we've replaced suits with suits with devs and they're undergoing huge structural changes and also like moving over from i think it's eth zero i forget if what the terminology is for the uh, most recent phase zero of eth2 phase zero easy to confuse (laughs) phase zero that is a really awkward change as well and so you've got at the base level like ethereum is undergoing massive change and then you have these smart contracts that almost nearly every day now we're seeing one have a, a flaw that's been exploited. Mm-hmm. And so it's skyscrapers on skyscrapers on quicksand, you know? And so that's where I am equally optimistic as Eric as like, I'd like to see new things built. I'm not just a maximalist to be a maximalist. I mined prime coin. I bought Litecoin. I, I didn't start this journey by you only believing in Bitcoin. Up. I thought, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, you know, prime coin, I went down the journey of wondering, oh, well, what if there's something more useful to do with the proof of work? I can find prime numbers too. So I've, I've gone down these rabbit holes and, you know, with Ethereum, I don't see how you can look at that as a company founder and believe that you could actually build a company or build processes on top of such a experimental foundation. I agree. The experimentation is cool. I, like, I want these things to occur and to happen. Can they do it structurally? I don't even know if people, pe- I mean, when people look at this transition, a lot of people are very uncertain about how this is going to work with Ethereum, even the Ethereum core developers themselves. So I, yeah. I don't see how we can look at that and look at that as like a solution for a financial system. Maybe if everything goes well, 
you know, I could see that conversation becoming more and more relevant, but it's hard to look at it now and see that. So that's all fair. And I disagree with none of that. Yeah. I mean, Ethereum is going through a ridiculous change and it, it could completely fail. I mean, to, to go from a proof of work system to proof of stake, while it's worth tens of billions of dollars and you have all this economic activity happening on it is, you know, the, the height of riskiness and recklessness. That's all, that's all fair. That's all fair. And if someone wants to avoid those systems because those risks are too high in their current state, I think that's a completely fair and reasonable perspective. But then what happens if it completely collapses under the weight of this? Billions is going to be lost. Yeah. Well, what, what, happened, when, what happened when Mt. Gox went down? And how many people how many people wrote the obituary of Bitcoin because Mount Gox well, went down four hundred million dollars? That's slightly different because Mount Mount Gox. Well, Mount Gox is an exchange. We're talking about the actual protocol itself. Yeah, but it's but, a little bit of a fault. Yeah, I, I think that's why? a false equivalence. Why? Well, one's a protocol and one's not a protocol. One's a company that is was misconstrued by the press as a protocol, but that doesn't mean that there's an actual issue on the protocol. And if you're referencing the couple different uh, issues that occurred on the Bitcoin protocol like the 2010 inflation bug, Bitcoin had no value. And you're right, it was experimental. But that was 10 years ago. We're much more mature. We have many more eyeballs on the code. This should not be happening this far in the future with this much money and these many eyeballs looking at it. It's a different era. It was before Bitcoin was even worth a penny. You know, So using that as an example, or using Mt. Gox, I feel like is an intentional false equivalency to make these events seem equivalent, but they're not at all. So you're, you're correct that Gox is a centralized company, and what we're talking about here is the protocol of Ethereum failing and what would happen. That, yeah, that is different. What's not different is that just as when Mt. Gox went down and everyone thought that that was the end of the world and, and Bitcoin and the industry itself rebuilt in other ways around it and got better and was expressed anti-fragility, so too does the crypto industry if Ethereum fails. Do either of you believe for a minute that if Ethereum tomorrow had some zero-day bug that wiped out the entire system, that suddenly everyone would just go to, go to Bitcoin and there would be no other experimentation on other other chains and other coins. No, of course people, not. People people will try to figure out what happened. They'll they'll innovate. They'll change things. They'll build others. Like th that is the rapid innovation of change that we should be celebrating, not not scared of. And and I I do find it a little interesting to hear this this tone of like, well, back when we as the Bitcoiners were experimenting, it was okay how how we did it, but this recent innovation, that, that's too reckless, right? I mean, it's very paternalistic and really, I think, uh, against the ethos of, of decentralization itself. I would say it's more representative of the maturity of the industry. The fact that we would want to look pack, past and look back on our young self and be like, I should behave like I did when I was 12 doesn't make much sense. We're all much older, we're much more mature. Even Ethereum, you know, was developed later, but it developed later on the backs of, of Bitcoin's development, for example, like exchanges that were built and code infrastructure and and developer interest, et cetera. Bitcoin started from zero to one and Ethereum came from like one to two. So I, I think it's fully within our right to start to question the current state of things because this is the mature state of the industry. Um, we have thousands of developers looking at this code compared to back in 2010, where like very, very few were. So I think it's a different era and deserves a different level of scrutiny. Can can you appreciate it under the context of Bitcoin, you know, being being the first and most conservative of these projects and yes, indeed being more mature and thus needing to move 
much more carefully and being more responsive and also celebrating that all these other peripheral projects are doing the experimentation. I mean, isn't that, isn't that good? Absolutely. And I'm a free market guy where I believe anyone should do whatever they'd like. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go store my wealth in it or going to go sure. use it. Um, I don't know a protocol right now that really solves a problem for any of my pain points. Um, whenever in the product world, whenever we see something trending and we see folks using it, we hear about it. We see the metrics start to move up. And when you look at most of these DeFi projects, like the metrics are equivalent to a very small app. So any app you want to choose, it could be a weather app or any other app out there in the world. Like, I mean, I created an app for drone pilots called Hover for fun. That has more daily active users than most of these DeFi projects. Like that is, and, and if you look at the daily active user numbers or you look at the monthly active user numbers, they're not exactly going perfectly up and to the right. They're more surge of interest alongside some of the, you know, high yields that they receive. And then you see the decline. So it's more, you know, you and I have been around a long time. We see these flash in the pan narratives. What shows you, what, what indicates to you that these are going to stick around a little bit longer? Yeah, and this, this is something that we can empirically look at, right? Let's talk about Uniswap. Uniswap is doing more volume than Coinbase. Like, do you, do you have any conception of how profound that is, that a decentralized open borderless protocol is trading without permission more digital assets and value every day than Coinbase, which has been around for eight years and raised $500 million. You're conveying it as if you have all these little projects and none of them are seeing success. The majority of them don't, but that's true of all startup situations. So let's let's talk Uniswap. That, that has demonstrated not just product market fit, but is now dominating against no, Coinbase. product market fit is defined by retention. We need to see if this volume is sustained over time or if they've just incentivized sure. short-term gaming. And sure, so that's, that's where fair. I think TBD. Yeah, that, that's fair. But empirically, you have to acknowledge that the rise of Uniswap itself this year is demonstrating something that until that empirically changes needs to be considered. Could, could, could you really say, though, like in 2017... We had that kind of like crazy time where people were investing in ICOs and tokens and, and almost everything has died or is dying from that period. Could we not just argue that this is the same, that there isn't really any value being created and what's being created is like an opportunity for people to make money. And that's all it is. It, it is just a casino and, that, and that's what really people get involved in rather than true value because I've not seen or heard of anything being created I think oh that's really useful I could imagine I want to use that or what my friends would want to use that I can give lots of really solid arguments for why my friends should be in, investing and in putting their money in Bitcoin now there's nothing I've seen in DeFi that has am I missing something there Eric I mean again just as in the ICO days most of everything was garbage but you know what came out of the ICO days? Ethereum itself. Ethereum was an ICO project. And it is not the only coin that that or new blockchain that launched back then that has material growth and material usage and material success today. So you, you only need to find a few of the diamonds in a field of, of garbage for the whole process to be to be valid. And similarly in this De in this DeFi stuff, yeah, most of it's total total garbage and, and a lot of it is like pyramid scam, like just casino nonsense. Um, that, that's absolutely true. 
But then there's Uniswap. Then there's a way to move one asset into another with no permission from anywhere in the world. And no one can stop that. I mean, how, how can any Bitcoiner see what Uniswap has done and not applaud that? Just, you know, and the reason is it's built on Ethereum instead of Bitcoin. That's that's why they're not applauding it. But it is taking the essence of decentralization and, and censorship resistance and bringing it into new areas of financial transactions. And I, I think it's a beautiful I, thing. I'm not sure that's entirely true, Eric, because when the INX uh, uh, project came out, I think there are a lot of Bitcoiners who are, you don't even like the idea of that coming on to Liquid. I'm not even excited about that. So I'm not sure that's entirely true. I'm not sure it's just because it's on Ethereum. And there's also, I wouldn't say that they wouldn't say it's not impressive. I think the numbers they've done is impressive. You can't help but look at that and say those numbers are impressive. But but what, how meaningful are they? Like, what, what do those numbers actually mean? You know, where will that value exist in you know, two, three years. Like I know Bitcoin's going to be around in 10 years and the value they put in there is, I'm pretty confident. I've got a lot of conviction that that would be a safe place to put your money. I I don't have that conviction behind DeFi projects. That's fine. I mean, no no one should have conviction that they could leave a lot of money in DeFi projects for an extended period of time. It has not earned that yet. Dan, would you, so uh, I've been tweeting just for a laugh and uh, making some jokes about this uh, conversation, but Mr. Hoddle said, can Dan uh, understand and explain whether these things are scams? And I think a more important question is, do you think we're talking about things that are scams or do we? are you talking about things that are just poorly thought through? Because it's, it's kind of a different thing. Some people call everything a scam and I, I don't always agree with that statement myself. Yeah, so I mean, it's a little bit of a bait question, but... Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, look, I think my general line is I've been around for eight years and I've seen 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go and I'm not exactly thrilled by what I've seen. I don't see any things that are compelling to me on a personal level. Again, all of these are more of personal opinions. Um, in terms of scamminess or not, there's, I've actually, it's really hard to define in the crypto space and I've found, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to quantify it in the most succinct way possible. And the way that I would define scam is the delta between expectations and what you deliver. Now, what to degree of that delta is a scam or not, is that's a little subjective. So if I sold you a room in my moon hotel that I have not built yet, according to crypto, that's not a scam because it's possible. It's technically possible within the realm of physics. My ability to go deliver on that, as we all know, is very unlikely given that I have no background in building rockets or spaceships or anything else. So for me, I would define that as a scam. If I were to sell you a room in my moon hotel, the delta between my ability to execute on that and the expectations I've set are so enormous that I find it very unlikely. That's my definition of scam. Um, the problem is there's not like a concrete one, and this is where there's a lot of folks in the altcoin space that use this as a false equivalency where they say, oh, we're just like startups. Sure, but startups in Silicon Valley typically go through quite a bit of vetting. Of course, you still have the Theranoses and whatnot, um, but in Silicon Valley, you typically have to put there's a lot more research done. There's a lot more traction that needs to be shown uh, versus in crypto where you open up investing to everyone. Anyone can go buy your token and you don't necessarily have to deliver to deliver on that value in order for value to accrue to the token. So I would say my, my most succinct way to define a scam is the delta between expectations and what was delivered. Do you think Zcash is a scam? I think they've delivered largely on what they've promised. I think Zcash is a company. 
well, it's there is a there is an organization and there is a blockchain and a, mm -hmm. and a cryptocurrency. So do I you think, think it it's collapses. a scam? I don't. I don't think everything's a scam. You're talking about the coin itself. Yeah, the, the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency known as Zcash and the the operation of the company that made that happen, it, was that operation either when it started or today a, a scam? I would say that they have largely delivered upon what they promised the people who purchased Zcash. So can you make a step further and just admit that it isn't a scam? <laughs> I don't, think it's, I don't yeah. think it's a scam. Okay. It doesn't mean that I find it interesting or that, nor that I think it will survive or exist or thrive, Sure, but I don't consider it to be a scam. Okay. Yeah. So you, you're willing, you're willing to state that there are crypto projects that are not scams, even if you don't personally like them. Right. What I'm saying is that there's to each person, there's an own subjective sort of classification of that. So that's where you see some Bitcoiners like Mr. Hoddle, who may very be, be very well, very well be, may be right in terms of his perceived like delivery versus what you promised. Um, I haven't dug in on the Zcash project. I'm not following it on a day-to-day -day basis, but to the best of my understanding, they've delivered most of what they promised to their users. Um, now I think I, there's some unsavory things like, for example, like the uh, amount that they carve out of the block reward for the initial team and stuff. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think some of that stuff is like, I don't know if that's a scam or not though. I would say that's just like not perceived very well by the community. Yeah, but they were they were transparent about that. Yeah, and Bitcoin is used as the basis for everything else, and nobody can live up to what Bitcoin's done. Yeah, I, I think there's better examples of. I think it, I think there's there's more more reason to call something like Ethereum a scam than Ethereum has at times has been very misleading about what it's trying to be and what it ultimately delivers, and it's kind of it's moved the it's moved it's moved the goalpost quite a bit on that. I think you're right that Zcash is tried to, you know, it's fundamentally deliver what they set out to do. All right. So, yeah, I, you know, I think largely what, what is disappointing to me is that many of the principles that make Bitcoin important, decentralization, inability to be censored, um, you know, the, the openness that anyone can, can access and use those principles are are being taken and expressed in other ways in other areas and i think that is one that is one of bitcoin's best gifts to humanity is that not only is it as a project incredibly successful and it will on its own change the world but it has also inspired all sorts of other experimentation projects that are also changing the world and instead of seeing that as a a collaborative mutually beneficial phenomenon um, I'm dismayed that so many Bitcoiners see these things as as threats, as scams, as something to spend much of their time dismissing and deriding. Um, and it's just it's just kind of depressing because so much positive value and energy is getting put into this experimentation. And and it's inspiring to me every day. And I, I wish that other Bitcoiners would see th that essence being expressed in those other projects. I think the only reason why Bitcoin is around today is due to Bitcoiners resiliency against competing narratives. The Bcash community largely tried to destroy Bitcoin and Bitcoiners rejected that with intensity as they should have, and they won. Also, you have the Ethereum community led by Vitalik 
largely led by Vitalik, who has consistently tried to use like uh, proof of work is wasteful or uh, an environmental disaster as a way to undermine Bitcoin. Uh, he has also attacked Bitcoiners themselves by calling them maximalist and saying that they are conservative luddites, essentially. I am paraphrasing. He didn't actually say those words. Um, I don't know why it's wrong for Bitcoiners to defend themselves. They What they believe in is justified. They have people constantly attacking them. Other coins constantly attack Bitcoin speed, proof of work, the community, the monetary policy incessantly. Bitcoiners have defended themselves justifiably so against these attacks. And so I find it surprising when these altcoins attack Bitcoiners or position their coin as advantageous towards Bitcoin and then are offended when Bitcoiners you know, give a good rebuttal and then also go after them. I think it's the Bitcoin, as we call the cyber hornets, defending what is rightfully theirs and are justifiable in their defense of it. So there's definitely truth in what you're saying, right? And Bitcoin has been forged in an environment of hostility from the very beginning, right? It is it is an explicitly countercultural transformative technology, which if successful will change like much of how the earth works and is going to have a gazillion enemies, 100%. Zcash and Ethereum are not enemies of Bitcoin. And the, the fact that some people in those communities will point out attributes of Bitcoin that they think they can do better or differently for whatever purpose is not an attack on Bitcoin. It's a modification to build another part of what is a decentralized phenomenon. That, that is part of the decentralization. If we only had one chain and one coin, we would be in a less decentralized, less diverse ecosystem of this technology. So there's two points here. One is actually per the how the block reward, reward works. Less chains is better because that means that each chain has more security. The more chains you have, actually, the less security you have with these chains long term. So it's actually counterintuitive, but it's better for decentralization if there are very few chains than many chains, as that block reward is what is then given to the miners to behave properly in organized transactions, which ensures all of the decentralization works as it should. That's that's fair. But you said few chains, not one chain. Do you, do you actually think that decentralization is best served if there is only one blockchain? Per the basic fundamental part of how blockchains work, the answer is yes. The security budget of a singular blockchain having all of the activity on it would be far greater. So for example, let's say we have $100 billion of security spend a year in block reward. If we divide that up between 100 chains, those chains are fundamentally weaker sure. and can be more easily attacked. So the fewer chains, the better for a particular blockchain's security. Yes, unless you're already well beyond the amount of resources that need to be spent on security. So so right. it's not always true that, that for economic efficiency, a, a certain chain should have double the mining power behind it. There, there is a point of diminishing return. And if you channel all, all economic uh, energy into security at all costs, you, you actually end up with an inferior product and something that is less, less innovative and useful. Hasu has some great points on this and same with Nick Carter. There's either the stock flow or threshold model of security spend. What is an appropriate level to you know be able to survive a state level attack? You're right. We don't know. What we do know is that in the low billions is probably too little. The U.S. Uh, defense budget is half a trillion a year. So I think we can concretely say that like we do not have enough security spend right now to survive a state level attack. Um, having it split up between multiple chains, I'm not sure if that would help. Also, there's this isn't just code. This is a shelling point of 
people's belief in it. It's the Lindy effect of people continuing to believe in it and store value in it. We can't just have one chain disappear and another one pop up. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. You can't rebuild trust. You can't rebuild faith. So the beauty and the innovation isn't just this code. The code is actually a small part of that. It's the social network around it. It's the belief and story and value in it in, in that continuity of that protocol through time. Um, so I would say the innovation here isn't necessarily code. It's more of that continuity and the fact that Bitcoin survived this long is incredible. I, th I think that last point is completely valid in a world where the where all the blockchains and all the coins were only trying to do one thing, which is to be a, a monetary standard, right? If it was Bitcoin and Bcash and Litecoin and the, the very similar coins, they're all basically trying to do that one thing. I, I would buy that argument. I think that would that would be true. But many of these coins are not trying to compete on that. They're doing something else. Well, there's a couple of things we can use to look at what are appropriate use cases for a blockchain. Now, we know that block space is finite. So to get a transaction, whether you're doing a smart contract or a Bitcoin transaction or a coffee transaction um, using Litecoin or whatever you want, those have to bid for that block space. And that's how tra transaction fees are your bid to get into that, that scarce amount of block space. If any of these chains have any sort of volume, those fees become enormous and crowd out any other use cases other than ones that are highly economic dense, have high economic density, which means that the transaction itself or the smart contract has a lot of value in it. They will be the only ones who can afford to bid to get into the block space. So with that, we can already pretty much take out many of these like layer one chains that are useful for payments or some other function that doesn't accrue demand uh, from these higher value transactions. So we, we can see things like that that kind of sort of indicate, for example, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin on layer one will not be used for coffee. And we know that for sure, because transaction fees will be over. And right now I think they're at like $5. Those will only continue to climb as demand uh, increases for that block space. So, you know, with that, we can easily eliminate some ideas of like this blockchain, blockchain technology might be useful for some of these other use cases as we see some of the fundamental components of how the block space market works. So counterpoint, you have, you have some purpose-built blockchains which make certain design decisions, um, some of which are trying to explicitly optimize less for security and more for speed, right? I don't think there's anything in particular wrong with that. It would not be the model to go with for your money standard, but take like the Solana blockchain, which is which has this this decentralized exchange built on it. It runs on like 20 or 30 nodes, not nearly decentralized enough to run a global monetary system, but it is a decentralized exchange that basically anyone in the world can access and it has extremely high transactional throughput and it's designed for that purpose. What, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong or right about that. It's just that, uh, for example, why don't we just have like 30 distributed databases? Why does that have to be on a blockchain and why do we need the Solana token for that? And I don't want to get into Solana specifically. I don't want to pick on them. But, you know, I just don't really, you know, when you look at scalability with blockchains, it's essentially a nature of like throughput is a function of how many copies of the ledger do we need to have? How robust is it against state level attacks? And there's this, there was this older argument. This argument was more popular in 2017 that blockchain is a sliding scale. You don't need state level censorship resistance you can have this sort of like there's a it's a it's a more of a, a grayscale right of like there's bitcoin and then there's other variants but if these protocols are solving a problem like a blockchain should which is around providing people access to financial uh, ability to 
store value, or as you're saying, there's other use cases as well, inherently states will become offended by that and or become hostile towards it. So they all actually need to have state level censorship resistance. It's not just Bitcoin, any other financial use case that undermines regulatory frameworks or undermines the authority of the state will be challenged. There is truth to that, but when you combine it with the fact that these things are open source and can be duplicated, you get you get a system where the the vectors of attack that work on Bitcoin might not work on them or vice versa. And that is part of the decentralization. If, if there's only one blockchain, a state actor can focus on the design parameters of that, knowing that there are no alternatives if they figure it out. How is that superior to a world with a very messy and diverse set of blockchains, all of which that have different attributes and are constantly changing? At first glance, thinking more is, you know, diversity is typically around placing multiple bets. But when we look at how blockchains are constructed, as we've seen with the block reward, that is required to be high in order to make sure that decentralization is preserved. So multiple chains existing does not increase decentralization. And also um, you have less eyeballs looking at the code because there's more layer one chains to look at. And there's a shelling point around storing value or participating in a certain coin. You can't replicate that. That is not copy pastable with code. You can't copy paste it and fix the flaw. You have aggregate trust and belief in it by humans who are, we're not code, we're simply interactors with the code. And that's not a non-replicable function. You you assume that uh, like a lot of fixed pie fallacies here, Ethereum's existence has brought in so many developers into this technology. They, they're not just taking a, a fraction of Bitcoin's eyes off that code. They, they've inspired a whole different generation of people, many of which totally have different feelings on a lot of this stuff than, than you or I do. That's part of the decentralization. Dan, let me ask you something. Dan, why does this all matter to you? Like, what's what's the kind of important point here? Is it that you think a lot of noise needs to be made to make people aware of the risks of investing money in this? Like, or some more responsibility needs to be put on development? Like, what's the important outcome that you would be looking for based on what you believe? When I was younger, I was hoping for more responsibility, but through time, I've sort of given up on that. Um, it's just things are going to happen and you just have to be okay with it and experiments and wild ideas that should never have been of start, should have never been started are going to happen whether I like it or not. Um, I'm also a free markets guy, so people are free to do what they like, even if I really don't like it. For me, I felt in 2016, I, I was in crypto from... 13 through 16, and then in 16, I went to go work at Uber. At Uber, I mentally checked out a little bit, and while I still hodled, I was paying attention just on executing my role. During the fork wars, when I came back in late 17, I felt like I had led Bitcoin down. I had seen people who didn't understand what Bitcoin's value prop was almost destroy it, which to me was horrible to see. I felt I felt that I had betrayed Bitcoin by not being there. And so when I came back, I felt like I had things to say around why Bitcoin matters, what it's solving for this world. And that's where most of you all probably heard my name through the last two years rather than a long, long time ago when I used to work in this space. And so for me, why I care about this is that I've seen constant narrative attacks on Bitcoin. And that's why I wrote a series of my articles, starting with HODLers are revolutionaries. Naval Ravikant said that HODLers were free riders. 
And I felt that that was just so misunderstood, that it's, that's such misunderstood what Bitcoin was and how it worked with the believers in it, the people who purchased it and stored value in it, which make the whole thing work, that I felt compelled to start writing. Same with proof of work is efficient, the second article I wrote. And Bitcoin's distribution was fair. Some people used to claim that Bitcoin's uh, launch was equivalent to a stealth pre-mine, which it, not, it is not at all. So these different narratives I saw were attacks on Bitcoin constantly. And so we see these, these attacks on Bitcoin, I felt like I needed to defend it. And so with these coins, they're free to go do what they'd like, but often they will go after Bitcoin. And I feel the need to defend it from a narrative level of going, well, that's factually incorrect or this or that, because some coins will use where we are more fair than Bitcoin. We use less energy than Bitcoin, and that's more environmentally friendly. We're faster, we're, we're this or that, but they typically don't talk about the trade-offs. And so on a personal level, I felt compelled to write, to clarify those things. And then to wrap this all up, you know, on the Ethereum side, they claimed that they were not competitive with Bitcoin for a long time until a year or two ago. And now they're trying to take the title of sound money, which I find, I don't, and Eric, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts here. So on the, on the sound money side, they very much pivoted their narrative to like ETH is money, ETH is sound money. And now they're talking about monetary policy. And I don't remember them talking about that in 2015, 2016. And so you say that they don't compete. They're basically pointing their roadmap and their ship and their community's energy right at Bitcoin. Who's they? I would say, yeah, it's a great question because there's a lot of folks in the Ethereum community who will build on top of Ethereum for different reasons. But it does seem that in the crypto Twitter sphere, there is a general ETH is money narrative that has become more popular in the last two years and that they make it and they compare it against Bitcoin. I think some, I think there's a conflict. Do. Yeah, I think there's a conflict in the Ethereum community because I've seen other people actually argue back against that. Don't say that. Who was it? I saw recently said, that's a dumb idea. Stop saying that. Someone specifically said, I know what you mean, though, Dan, but I have seen I have also seen um, I've seen people actually challenge that as well. Yeah, well, Dan, those those articles that you cite are are fantastic, and you've you've done a huge service to Bitcoin by explaining those things clearly and helpfully. And so, I I am personally grateful to you for doing those things. I guess my my confidence in Bitcoin and its position, and its design parameters, and and its trajectory, um, I feel non threatened by any of these other coins, even even if some of the people in those coins try to challenge parts of Bitcoin. Um, it doesn't it doesn't feel threatening to me. What what is what is threatening to me is that the real obstacle is one where humans change from fiat and banks and governments controlling value to one in which money systems are open and free market and anyone can interact with them. That is a that is a fundamental philosophical struggle that this whole industry is going to need to convince the world of. And the more that it disputes these these little differences between these chains and tries to make enemies of the people who actually believe 99% of the same things. I, I feel like it's energy spent in, in the wrong direction. And at the same time, a lot of it is garbage. And so I, I would not tell people to go invest in all these different coins. If you can only invest in one coin, it should absolutely be Bitcoin and you should be extremely careful with, with anything else, 100%. Eric, is there any garbage on Shapeshift? Yeah, um, there is. Yeah, we there have been two coins that we ever delisted because we felt that they were they were just clearly just so scammy and bad that we removed them. One was Paycoin about a month after we added it, 
And when we started realizing the promises they were making were just total fraud, we delisted that. The other was BSV because fucking Craig Wright and Calvin are such douchebags. It's, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> that, that coin is, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of coins that are, are on Shapeshift that I would never own. Um, they're not necessarily scams and I don't think they, some of them have, have a lot of value like Ethereum and some of them don't, but that's kind of for people to play around with and, and do what they will. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would never tell people that all these different coins are valuable. The, the vast majority of them are garbage and that's, that's fine. Be careful. All right. Well, conscious of closing out on times, I think you've both made some very solid arguments. I, you know, my position, I'm, I definitely veer more towards Dan, but I'm not as aligned with Dan. Like I'm, I'm less bothered by some things, but um, Dan, you've made a couple of arguments this evening, which I mean, that I hadn't crossed my mind. I mean, the very long-term security budget is an important issue that I think uh, some other projects haven't realized. And I do think there's some bullshit out there. I do think something like Filecoin is absolute nonsense. And I, I think we're seeing that unravel in front of our eyes already. Um, but at the same time, you know, I find your argument about experimentation, sometimes it's hard to argue against experimentation, Eric, but also at the same time, perhaps these things should be experimented on in their own time rather than with other people's money under false claims of things they can do. I think it's a complex area. <laughs> My show is going to stay what Bitcoin did. It's Bitcoin only. Um, Dan, uh, do you want any closing words? I really appreciated the opportunity to come on and jam. Um, you know, Eric and I have known each other for a long time. And while we disagree, we still, I think, you know, have a healthy respect for each other in terms of debating. I'm not sure if we're ever going to see eye to eye, <laughs> yeah, but I certainly respect some of the arguments that he made. Um, I also look, I live in Silicon Valley. I've been out here for seven years. The experimentation culture is huge here. So I definitely like experimentation too. I just, I'm, I'm more of a cautiously optimistic type. All right, Eric, what about yourself? Closing words? Closing words, I'm just so fucking excited for this whole phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's very easy to get bogged down in, in a million problems, but seeing what has happened to Bitcoin from 2011 to now, the dreams that we had of what this could be are, are not just like hinted at still, but they are actually happening. And it's been less than a decade. And um, I just, I hope that people appreciate living in that time and being part of that phenomenon. And I hope that people realize that the game is just getting started and that the, the real struggle is going to happen as this form of money sucks up the value of the earth into this new, into this new infrastructure. And all of us have a part to play in, in making that as smooth and, um, and ethical as possible. And so um, for all your listeners, you know, thank you for, for supporting the growth of this and uh and stay stay educated stay skeptical and uh stay safe amazing well listen i love both of you i miss you both uh hopefully that's, i don't know if you're going to take a vaccine uh, eric i can't imagine you will but i will i want to travel i want to get back to the states if i have to flash my health passport i will but hopefully at some point in the next six months this will all get back to normal and i can see you both in person but it's great to see you I miss you both and uh, take care cheers see you guys Peter. Okay, what did you make of that one? Did you enjoy that? First up, a massive thanks to Dan and Eric for agreeing to do this. These conversations can get heated sometimes, they can end up in massive arguments, and sometimes nothing productive or useful actually comes out of it. But I thought this was really useful. I thought Dan and Eric both did a great job. 
I know that neither of them will be swayed from their viewpoint and I didn't expect them to be but I think this kind of conversation really helps other people in making their decisions as I said listen I'm on Dan's side I've been down the altcoin rabbit hole I made and lost money very quickly and look I'm just a Bitcoiner only right now that's the only thing I think it's worth having my money in but it's great to hear from both sides. And look, as I said in the intro, if you want to get in touch, if you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. And also, if you want to support the show, really, just these days, I'm just asking for reviews on iTunes. It takes like two minutes. If you enjoy the show, if you listen regularly, and you think, you know what, Pete, I want to help you out, mate. Just head over to iTunes and leave me a review. Hopefully, you think it deserves five stars. If you think this show's shit and you want to give me one star, not a problem. Be slightly disappointed. But anyway, do what you need to do. But reviews are helpful. And outside of that, do you want to check out my other show? Have you ever checked out my other show, Defiance? There's a lot of cool content on there, a lot of series we've made. And we're in the middle of this series about US political division. Part four of that is coming out Thursday. We've got a new series about Britney Spears coming after that. It's kind of an interesting story we're getting into there. Anyway, you can find out that all at defiance.news. Let's hope Bitcoin keeps mooning. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you all on Friday.